This is Nature News from RSPB Scotland. Hello and welcome to Nature News from RSBB Scotland. I'm Stephen McGee. And I'm Kate Kirkwood. And this is a slightly different edition of the podcast, I think, Kate. Um, we are going to be focusing on one story, and it is the story of bird flu, which, I mean, nobody could really have missed over the last few weeks. No, it's been... Uh... Well, we've not necessarily seen a whole lot covered in mainstream media. If you're linked into Twitter and social media, you'll see there's been a lot of discussion about it and a lot of people crying out for a bit of help around it and understanding. Absolutely. So we're going to try and walk you through what's been happening, what the implications may or may not be, and also, crucially, things that you can do to help. Uh, we are we're at the seaside. We are. we are. We're at South Queen's Ferry. We are right underneath the rail bridge. So if there's a train, don't worry about it. That's all it is. But yeah. I'm going to try and tell you what you need to know about bird flu. So as I say, no nature news to start nature news this time because we are focusing on this one topic and to help us do that we are joined by Paul Walton right who is knows everything we need to know hopefully about bird flu uh, nobody knows everything we need to know <laughs> I'm afraid Stephen at the moment but I'll, I'll do my best yeah. right, excellent um, I suppose first things first what is bird flu it, 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 bird flu circulates in wild bird populations uh, kind of naturally and probably has done for millennia um, but what we're facing at the moment is a new form of this virus um, and it is for birds much more deadly than the previous uh, versions of it that, we, that, that we've seen so the low pathogenic avian influenza um, you know the, 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 there are symptoms in birds but it doesn't sort of kill very large numbers of birds in recorded history, we now have what's called highly pathogenic avian influenza circulating in wild bird populations. And for the first time, we are seeing real, what we call population level impacts. That means the whole populations of wild bird species are being impacted uh, and reduced through the deaths of birds from this new form of the virus. Now, we have spoken about this before, Kate, mm. but we spoke about it, like, in the autumn. Yeah, we spoke about it affecting particular sort of flocks of wildfowl around the geese, um, kind of in the sort of south of Scotland. Um, our colleagues at Mears Head were really struggling with it. Um, but we kind of, we began to speak about it maybe about a month ago, um, as it was starting to be seen more regularly. Um, but it really has been something that's kind of been fairly kind of low level and mainstream kind of understanding of what's going on yeah yeah so the the, the difference now paul is having seen it make it i mean having you're talking about population level impacts mm. i mean certainly in the barnacle geese in the solway firth you know the, we were looking at what over 30 percent of the population yeah. dying last autumn and we thought that was pretty bad at the time but what we're now seeing in seabirds give us a sense of how serious it is well um that die-off of barnacle geese, you know, m maybe 10,000 birds, uh, maybe more uh, died on the Solway. These are the, 
the Svalbard breeding barnacle geese, they breed in the Svalbard Islands north of Norway, and the whole of that breeding population comes and winters on the Solway, and this winter a third of them were lost. And that is unprecedented in UK history um, in terms of an Im impact of a avian influenza, bird flu. Um, so, so that was new. So you're right. I mean, that, that, was, that was a major concern. Um, then it, last summer, um, it was noticed that a bird called the Great Skewer was, you know, people were AKA finding... A.k.a. the Bonksy. A.k.a. the Bonksy. Yeah. yeah, the Bonksy is its Shetland name, but kind of everyone who knows the bird calls them Bonksies because it's just such a great word. Um, yeah, Bonksies, uh, sick, dying, they were tested um, but, but by government um, virologists and uh, positive for high pathogenic avian influenza, positive for bird flu. And that happened just at the end of the breeding season, just before they migrated. Okay, so uh, they migrate to spend the winter off the west coast of Africa, and off they went. So we couldn't really assess what the impacts were. And I uh, worked with our conservation science department, the RSPB, to try and um, make sure we were ready when the birds returned this spring to see what impact that outbreak had had on uh, on on the bonxies. Because um, for that species, the great skewer, sixty percent of the world population breeds in the UK. Nearly all of those are, so 56% of the world population breeds in Scotland and of those 90% of them are in the Northern Isles. So we have real big global significance for that species. Um, so we were kind of waiting for them to come back and then when they did arrive, what I certainly wasn't expecting is they were sick again. So um, we saw bonxies again dying at their nests and being recorded sick. And they have been absolutely hammered by this disease. Mm. I mean, I was hearing the other day, 700 dead adults were found on the island of Fula in Shetland, which is a, an important colony. 250 was the last I heard of the count of dead birds on Fair Isle, well over 100 on St Kilda. These are the main breeding sites for that species, globally speaking. So and it, it has been absolutely devastated. We don't know exactly how much because, of course, we are really in the middle of the seabird breeding season right now so the chicks are just about to hatch um, but it is clear that we have seen a major impact on the world population of of bonxies and i don't know about you kate but i'm almost reluctant in the mornings <laughs> to look at twitter mm. or or even my emails because it seems every day there's fresh stuff like this yeah, and I think that is, it's, it's difficult to look at. It really is difficult to look at. But I think we're in a really privileged position where we can understand it better. So not looking away is also a really important part of that. Um, but I completely feel that. And to be honest, in my personal life, I am hesitating going out to the coast because I, I can shield myself from it a little bit. But having seen the conversations you've had with colleagues in Shetland, just kind of how how heartbreaking it is to see that scale of, of death uh, in species that we actually have quite personal connections with. I think it's something that doesn't always get talked about at length is if you, if you monitor a certain type of seabird sea or a colony, you actually build a relationship with it. It has its own character. You, everyone has their, their favourite species that they kind of resonate with. And so if you're starting to see challenges with that species, it can actually be really hard to stomach and you often feel quite powerless with it as well. Um, but yeah, I completely, I completely understand anyone who is struggling with it. 
it's tough, isn't it? I mean, we should also say for people that although we've seen massive impacts in bonksies, um, in beaches in the Northern Isles along the North Coast, now down the East Coast of Scotland, um, we're seeing significant impacts on other seabird species as well, yeah. gannets, terns, um, eider ducks, you know, it, it, it's... How, how wide is this going now? Well, um, I think the most important thing to say is that we are in uncharted territory. We, we don't know where we're headed with this, which is one of the worries. Um, in terms of other species, yes, gannets. Now, Scotland has 20% of the world population of northern gannets. Um, just on the first of fourth year, the biggest colony in the world, 150,000 birds, is on the Bass Rock. Um, the species, its scientific name is named after the Bass Rock, Morus Bassana. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's Scotland of global importance. It doesn't get much more globally important than that in, in my book. And we are seeing really large numbers of, of, of deaths of adult birds. So, you know, we've had, for example, just under 100 birds recently found at Troop Head in Aberdeenshire. Uh, one of our colleagues uh, w w was up in Hermaness, uh, the very northern tip of Shetland, which is a big gannet colony, and reckoned uh, last week there was about one in ten of the birds were dead on their nest. And um, then, w w as you say, there have been dead birds washing up right down the Northumberland coast as well, so sort of spreading into England. Now, the thing about this is that... Um, with geese, for example, we know that their populations can be quite volatile. So, um, for example, that Solway Barnacle's population after the Second World War was right down to 200 birds or so. It was really in trouble because of overhunting here and because of disturbance, because the Nazis were in Svalbard and very active there and disturbed the breeding grounds. Um, that species, th thanks to our predecessors in the RSPB received legal protection in the middle of the 20th century and immediately it responded and the population built up to 40,000 birds. It was a massive conservation success story really. But with seabirds they're a bit different. They are very long-lived birds. I mean your gannet will live to 30-40 years old. Some birds like Fulmer is probably quite a lot more than that. Um, and they have a naturally a very slow reproductive rate. So they only kind of lay a small number of eggs and rear one or two chicks a year um, at, at, at most. Um, when breeding adults start to die more than is normal, because adult mortality is normally quite low from one year to the next, when you elevate that, they really struggle to breed fast enough to make up the yeah, losses. Yeah, to fill in those yeah, gaps. Yeah, to, to fill, in the, fill in the gaps. And so the population then starts to decline. And that's why this is such a big worry for for conservationists and seabird biologists what's going on now and I mean Kate was saying there you feel it personally I mean I was eight years studying seabirds in Shetland and Orkney with Glasgow University did my PhD on a bird called the the black guillemot but I studied arctic terns and shags and guillemots and kittiwakes intensely for years spent thousands of hours watching these birds and I do feel a personal connection to this and I know a lot of people do but the thing that really got me was when I got a phone call saying that somebody had found like dozens of dead sandwich terns in Caithness. Oh, God, right. And, um, you know, just as a seabird biologist, I know that that's just not normal. It, you know, and this, this was in sort of end of May. And um, I have to say, when I got that news, I was really 
I actually just got, I, I try not to be emotional, I try to be professional, my job obviously, um, but really it, it, just, it just brought it home to me that we're facing something quite new and quite different. Yeah, that, I mean that emotional impact is a thing. Now I, I spent a bit of time in Shetland last week um, trying to get a sense of what this is like for people on the ground working for RSPB, dealing with this crisis, trying to work through it. Um, and this is a little bit of what I found when I was there. Hi Matt, somewhere ahead, RSPB Scotland Reserve, right down at the south end of mainland on Shetland. And uh, thankfully this is one of the areas that so far doesn't seem to have been really obviously affected by the bird flu outbreak. There's puffins here, foamers, guillemots, razorbills, bonksies hanging about. It's pretty amazing. But um, the reason I'm here in Shetland, unfortunately, is not just to enjoy the seabird colony. Uh, I've been here catching up with the staff who are working here, finding, about, finding out about what they're doing to try and deal with the bird flu outbreak. Anyway, um, I thought I'd like to hear from two of the staff who were who are working through this outbreak and trying to deal with it. And the two voices you hear are uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, who's the site manager for here, and also Helen Moncrief, who is uh, kind of runs the Shetland operation for RSPB Scotland, and they've both been very closely involved in dealing with this. So this is what they think about it heartbreaking it doesn't get easier like great skewers and then seeing the men this way it's quite harrowing seeing them dead in areas where you can see wager activity you can see fallow ropes you can see divers you can see the other potential risks um but that doesn't take away from just the the birds themselves the ones that are you know victims at the minute great skewers Arctic turns recently and then you see the reports of uh, vast waves of gannets and other seabirds washing up in areas and, and littered at the, uh, the base of cliffs up here at some key breeding sites. It's just it's heartbreaking, it just doesn't get, it doesn't get easier and, and it feels like it won't do. It feels like it's going to be a long summer. It's very difficult when you care so much about your work and what you do and, and care about the species that you deal with. And for me, it's not a case of, okay, switch off, you know, switch off outside of work and think about something different. Well, outside of work, I'm, I'm a birder. You know, that, that's what I like doing. Um, so there is no switch off, it's, it's constant. Like, it's, it's just a horror that's unfolding in front of our eyes, so. So this is what, three months on since we had about the, the dunters on the beaches and, and more species are being found with it. So it's, it feels like we're, yeah, just in a bit of a horror film that's unfolding and it's hard not to catastrophise about what might happen because bunksies in particular, you see them flying around everywhere. They, they breed in the hills, uh, they're out at sea and they're coming into the coast. And part of the secret of their success is they're a, a general feeder. They scavenge and they catch their own fish and they go for other birds. But I'm an optimist, but it is hard not to catastrophise about what is happening. And because the, 
the virus is spread through the fluids, so and seabirds are packed in together, particularly the gannets. Um, it's hard to not think what's going to happen next. And then uh, the RSB, we're, we're all around the country and we're hearing from our colleagues uh, right down in the south and west, Orkney here, and um, the St Kilda team, they've, they've got uh, a lot going on there with their bunksies too. So, so yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, it does feel like a tragedy unfolding, but we've just got to keep on keeping on and do what we can for the birds. And I really think we have to tell their stories. We, we owe it to them and we owe it to future generations to, um, to sort of capture the stories so we can learn about the virus and, and put sort of good conservation, conservation measures in place uh, to make sure the populations are as robust and resilient as they can be and protect the seas where they feed and protect their habitats where they breed. We just have to do it. So yes, at time of recording, things certainly aren't getting any better and we're still hoping for a really strong unified government and government agency response to this and pushing for that. So hopefully through the, the magic of podcast time travel, by the time this makes its way to you, maybe some of those issues at least will have been resolved. Yeah, so here we are in the future, um, and and the immediate question when I was up there, Paul, really was about just the, the practicalities of dealing with the outbreak, sure. dealing with the dead birds, understanding what's going on. Yeah. I know that there's been talks convened by the Scottish Government involving us, the relevant agencies, other wildlife organisations. Where are we with that? Um, I think it's fair to say that this has taken everyone by surprise. Um, um, th there was a, a period where quite a few of the officials that I was speaking to were sort of saying, oh, it's very sad, but there's nothing we can do about it. Um, that isn't RSPB Scotland's view. We believe there, there is quite a lot can be done about it. And indeed, it's the view of the United Nations Convention on Migratory Species who've set out guidelines for countries to develop national response plans, which involve monitoring, surveillance, some of which is underway, but also things like research into studying the birds that aren't yet ill to see you know if they have antibodies to so we can target measures in future then it's about things like um, minimizing disturbance where there's a localized outbreak where, where it's possible to keep disturbance to an absolute minimum perhaps through um, you know to trying to encourage people not to access foreshores etc uh, perhaps some temporary limitations on hunting activity um, and then there's there's other things that can be done in terms of uh, possibly um, carcass collection and um, where there are a lot of dead birds around now this is a very difficult one because of course I mean it was particularly different difficult for them in Shetland because, because it's an isolated area and what, what are you yeah. going to do with like bin bags full of like fixings of bird flu effects exactly and um, I think the the authorities um, have found this quite a challenging one logistically mm -hmm. as well but I am encouraged that discussion is now starting. The Scottish Government has initiated um, the, these sort of cross-sectoral discussions to see how we can um, all work, work together. And, you know, we really need to see that across the UK countries and some real coordination happening here so that we, in, in terms of our immediate response, we do things like get the right messaging out to people so people really should not be picking up sick or injured birds at the moment. This is a bird disease, OK? Um, it, 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 it's very rare 
that it's ever picked up by people, but it's not unheard of. So, you know, primary consideration must be keeping, keeping people safe, making sure people um, understand they need to keep their pets away from, from dead and sick birds. Mm -hmm. This sort of messaging, we need this to come really loud and clear, and that's why the kind of surprisingly low profile of this um, outbreak uh, at, the, at the moment is perhaps a bit of a worry. Um, but, the, but the initial signs are there that, that we're see, seeing, seeing some real movement from the authorities, yeah. Yeah, because it's worth talking about that, Kate. I mean, th there are things, you know, we were talking there about how you can, you know, look at your feed and feel helpless about this. There are things we can do, right? Mm. Both to protect ourselves and help with birds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think understanding it better, educating ourselves, like Paul's been saying, and really engaging with that kind of discussion is, is really important. But as you say, I think the importance of people understanding that at this busy time of year when people do want to go to the coast, I mean, it's irresistible on a hot sunny day to take the dogs out for a walk or the kids out to the beach. But I think being aware that we will be potentially coming into, to, if not contact, into kind of the vicinity of potentially washed up birds or into areas where there are sick and dying birds. And, and being, I think one of the things has been a bit emotionally prepared for that and thinking about, yeah. because you know when I think about summer holidays in Scotland with my kids, like going to places like Hand Island or wherever, mm. you know, are often the highlights of it. Mm -hmm. And now I suppose you've got to think, well, I have to prepare the ground a bit that things might be different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the slightly more harrowing stories that I heard as a description was um, of of guillemots just falling off their nests into the sea. And I think just witnessing that as well is, is definitely not something that anyone would be prepared for necessarily if you're not used to, to that level of kind of, um, I suppose, the, 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 the outbreak is causing. Yeah. I'm... I'm one other thing that, as of this week, people can now do, people very generously responded to an appeal we made last autumn in relation to the outbreak in uh, southwest Scotland. Um, there is now a renewed appeal around bird flu to help us, first of all, increase our on-the-ground response and make sure that we're taking account of all the things we need to do there, but also to do some of the, the work that... that, that Paul, you've been kind of indicating we need to do to raise the profile of this, right? Yeah. You know, and, and make sure that our advocacy and that we're and we're out there, you know, making sure that organ that, that governments and the relevant agencies are doing all the right things. Any money we get from this appeal can also be can, can be used to help with that. We will put the link for the appeal in the show notes, but that that, that is that is something practical that if you're in a position to do so, you can do. Now, one of the things that has caused some confusion, I think and that you might be able to help us out with, Paul, is understanding the human factors that contribute to this outbreak, and particularly the relationship between poultry, between farmed birds, and wild birds, right? And there is quite a lot of confusing and contradictory chatter around that out there. Help people understand what the factual basis for this is. Okay, so um, this isn't just a disease of wild birds, it is also a disease of poultry. And um, at the last assessment that I saw, 250 million domestic birds have died in efforts to control, um, control the disease. Um, the highly pathogenic uh, bird flu first arose, according to the United Nations assessment, um, in intensive poultry industry in uh, Eastern Asia, okay, and um, it, it first passed into wild birds in the early 2000s, 
um, a, a quite specific place, a, a place called Lake Xinghai in, in China, where domestic birds are sort of, you know, you know released onto the lake and mingle with, with wild birds. And it, it, the consensus, as I understand it, among virologists is that that was when it first passed into wild birds. It has then circulated in wild birds since then, and there have been the occasional outbreak, but nothing like what we've seen this winter. And it, it's simply a virus doing what viruses do, which it, it, it then changed when it was in the wild bird population, it changed. And I believe it was in sort of East Central Europe that virologists first became aware of this really, really deadly form of the disease in wild birds. And it killed demoiselle cranes in Rajasthan in India. It killed 7,000 common cranes in the state of Israel. It killed, um, you know, a high proportion of the world population of Dalmatian pelicans in Greece. And then there was that Solway outbreak. Now we have the range of species that it's affecting increasing again into seabirds and it's not just here it's uh, gannets across the Atlantic in Canada have been really badly hit as well and we, uh, we have a range of species affected over in uh, Canada and the United States too so this is becoming a kind of a, a, a global issue for wild birds but it, it is safe to say that at the moment Scotland is a, a, a bit of a centre of it um, which, which is why we are, we are so concerned and so active on it. I mean, one thing I do want to say is that, um, you know, seabirds in Scotland, I mean, it's one of our most precious natural treasures are as our, our, our populations of wild seabirds. Um, we, we have, as I said earlier, we've got a high proportion of the world population, but it's also a spectacle. Now, what I don't want us to give the message is don't visit seabird colonies at all. Yeah. Um, you just have to be aware of, of this disease and, and just, just be conscious of it. But there are boat operators here, we're just next to the pier here, you, you know, the Maid of the Fourth and other boats go from here, do tours around these islands, and it's still a wonderful thing to do. And these guys need, need, need their businesses not to be sort of, people not to react so extremely as they just say, we're not going to go to the coast. But at the same time, we really need, really need people to be aware of, of this issue and we really need people to be you know talking to policymakers talking to decision makers mm -hmm. um, and let uh, and letting people letting politicians know that that this is something that they take really seriously one of the things we need to talk to policymakers about mm -hmm. is like we've touched there on the on the human contribution to the origin of this disease mm -hmm. but these really valuable populations of seabirds in Scotland are under enormous pressures because of human activity yeah exactly like we've talked about kind of the the challenges that the these colonies are under pressure from in terms of sort of sea levels the the temperature of the seawater and access to food and things like that and then you've got things like um the plastic kind of microplastics in the water. So these are all things that people are aware of, but there's maybe not necessarily that amount of kind of joining up the dots. We've got colonies and species that are already under significant pressure from these yeah. um, these human-caused situations. So I think it's maybe worthwhile kind of people kind of joining the dots a little bit just to kind of really think these are these are birds that are under stress, populations under pressure, their access to feeding and breeding is limited. As, as it stands already. And then yet another disease that has been spread due to human activity is, is really kind of putting really significant pressures on these, these birds and these species. The, 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 the stat that always sticks in my mind is that since 1986, we have lost almost half of our seabirds in Scotland, right? That's right. So there's an index 
of annually monitored seabird, uh, breeding seabird species in Scotland. It covers 11 different species of seabird and that index has declined from 1986 to 2019 by 49%. Which, which, is, which is a huge decline. Um, and that was before the impact of highly pathogenic bird flu. Okay, so it's kind of, this is, comes on top of it. And it is, as Kate was indicating there, it's impacts of climate change, it's impact of food shortages, it's an inability of the birds to compete with, with, with human fisheries, industrial fisheries for, for sand eels in particular. It's, uh, we increasingly we understand it's about adult seabirds getting entangled in, in fishing gear. It is about the human introduction of invasive non-native mammals onto seabird breeding islands where they eat the chicks and eggs and the species can't, can't breed successfully. And so what, what we really need is for this um, terrible outbreak to be seen as a real wake-up call about species conservation and species recovery in Scotland and seabirds in particular other species too and what we need to see is we, we need to see an end to the industrial fishing of sand eels in Scottish waters. We need to see a rolling programme uh, around the Scottish archipelago of island restoration where there's invasive non-native mammals, that's removing the mammals and biosecurity making sure that these mammals don't arrive again in future to create safe breeding sites for, for these species. We need to see uh, future development uh, that, that's forthcoming. The, the much needed wind farms that will help our collective effort to fight climate change needs to need to be constructed and planned and designed in a way which minimises impacts on birds but then they also need to proceed in a way that, 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 that some, some of the funding that can come from that is applied directly to seabird conservation and we need to see these sort of measures taken as, as a matter of urgency now we've got the Scottish Biodiversity Strategy um, the consultation document just was just launched uh, yesterday um, and we need that strategy and the Scottish Seabird Conservation Strategy which is also in development to really step up in terms of ambition, to step up in terms of political priority and to step up in terms of funding. I am acutely aware that this podcast has not been the cheery listen that you might normally expect for us, right? But I'm also not really making an apology for that because this is a big deal and we need to think about it, right? But if I were trying to slightly reframe this stuff as positively as I can all of those factors which you have just cited, right the nature of the fishery mm. um, what we do in terms of biosecurity on islands the development of offshore wind and other renewable sources of energy these are all things which are in our control as a species right, these are things that we do and therefore we can do differently. So hopefully the potential positive out of this is that we realise the seriousness of this and we do the things that we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. So for example, on that Seabird Island Biosecurity, the RSPB is running at the moment a, 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 a huge project around all of the countries in the UK that's focused on Seabird Island Biosecurity. Um, that project is European funded. The funding ends in a couple of years. We've been speaking to governments about developing a true legacy of that project so that the work doesn't end suddenly after four years and biosecurity stops. And we've been getting somewhere with it, but some reluctance, of course. It's difficult financial times. We really need that legacy for our biosecurity for life project to be taken really seriously and we need a government to step up. And the sums involved are not enormous. That's another important thing to say. I just want to 
share one thing. I mean, you've got to be an optimist if you're a conservationist, as you well know, Stephen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, those reports of guillemots that Kate was talking about, down in our uh, wonderful reserve at the Mull of Galloway down there, our, our, our staff have been in touch with me saying, oh, look, here are photographs have taken of uh, guillemots on the cliffs, and sure, there are dead birds on those ledges. Um, you know, 30 dead guillemots a couple of weeks ago. And um, I was thinking to myself, this is potentially really, really serious. You don't see that many dead guillemots on ledges normally. And they nest absolutely cheek by jowl. Um, so so they, are, they are really in close proximity. They're completely packed in when they breed uh, uh, guillemots. Those 30 birds has not become 300, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I'm not a virologist. And I, we are in uncharted territory. And I cannot tell exactly what's going to happen. But it may be... They were looking at a situation where there are certain species like the sandwich tern and like the bonksy uh, and like the gannet that are really susceptible. But maybe, hopefully, hopefully, other species m might not be hit quite so hard. And so um, that is the hope. We still have a fabulous spectacle here on the Firth of Forth with, with our seabirds and right round our coasts in Shetland, Orkney, the Western Isles, the Argyle Islands. These are, these are, these are world-class places for wildlife and seabirds. And we want people to, to keep going there, but just be aware and be sensible. And we know from things that have happened before that if we either get out of the way as a species or even potentially help, Nature has incredible resilience in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there have been more examples than I can even kind of name. But even just the examples, the barnacle geese that you talked about earlier in the podcast, human concerted effort to do the thing that needs to be done can have immense impacts, whether that's positive or negative. But I think really it's, it's time for people to, to stand up and say, you know what? We're not having this anymore. We need to do what we need to do. Absolutely. Well, listen, we will keep you up to date, of course, with everything that's happened with bird flu. I'm hoping that in the next podcast we come back to you, bird flu will be part of the mix, but we'll be talking about some other things as well. Um, in the interim, if you're in a position to do so and it's something you want to do, we will put the link uh, for the appeal uh, into the show notes along with uh, the kind of the background information on bird flu if you want to dig a bit deeper. But um, Paul, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, yeah, goodbye for now. Thank you. Bye. Bye.